Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. First up, this is episode 296 of this podcast, which means episode 300 is coming up in May. That feels to me like a pretty big milestone for a weekly show, and so I'm going to throw a party. I'm celebrating it with a live podcast recording, a live show, on Friday, May 5th. Yes, that's Cinco de Mayo. Presented by Amarillo National Bank and Texas Tech Physicians Pediatrics. The live show starts at 7 p.m. That's the night of the first Friday art walk at Arts in the Sunset. Tickets for the show are $24.99. They include bar service from my friends at Sips and Giggles. They'll be serving beer, wine, and a specialty hay margarita. Uh, It's all included with your ticket. And if you listen to this podcast, I want you to come to the show. I want to meet you. I want you to meet former guests of the show. Uh, There will be a lot of longtime listeners there, a lot of people that you've heard in your ears. If you listen, there's going to be a special mystery interview guest. We're doing a special eight straight panel. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope you'll come. You can get tickets at heyamarillo.live. That's heyamarillo.live for the 300th episode Hey Amarillo Live Show, presented by Amarillo National Bank and Texas Tech Physicians Pediatrics. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Gott Wittenberg Emerson Commercial Real Estate online at gwamarello.com and to Tascosa Brick and Fireplace online at tascosabrickinc.com. Today's guest is Justin Thompson, whom you may have met if you read the March-April issue of my magazine, Brick and Elm. Our writer, John Mark Ballou, wrote a feature called Big Swing about Justin's collaboration with R.J. Solijax, the principal at Hamlet Elementary, to introduce golf to students there. Now, Justin is a collector of vintage golf clubs. That's a whole story. Uh, He's taught at WT. He's a social worker who used to be on staff for Boys Ranch for several years. He's long been associated with the Haley Project, a nonprofit that helps children with special needs, which is named after Justin's adult sister, Haley. Uh, He's also the co-host of Haley's Weekly News on YouTube with his sister. So we cover a lot of fun and interesting ground in this conversation. Here's Justin Thompson. Justin Thompson, welcome to the Hamarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. It's an honor. I heard about this podcast about 2019, I guess, okay. from David Ritchie. He's like, you you have to start listening to this. Uh, After he had been a guest? Is that when it was? I think so. I think so. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there was a self-plug there for sure. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'm, well, excited, I'm, I'm excited to have you here. Um, and I, I want to start with you the same way I start with all my guests. And that's just to ask why you're here in the first place. So what brought you to Amarillo? So I grew up in Canyon, graduated from Canyon High, and then, you know, the typical panhandle kid, I needed to get out and experience other things, you know, because you just feel like you have to grow somewhere else, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. Uh, ended up at Abilene Christian and got a degree in environmental science, of all things, from there. Uh, went and worked in the oil fields in Midland, Odessa area, and then came back in 2012. I moved back and... I've never even considered leaving hmm. since that point. So it's it's a great place for me. And even, even before we had kids, I knew this was a great place. Like I knew once I settled and kind of developed my own life here that there wouldn't be very many places I could do this and do what I do anywhere else. Okay. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's the perfect place for me. You know, my entire family 
with the exception of a few people are from the panhandle. Uh, and so Amarillo has always been a hub for us. Um, my parents have worked in Amarillo since 2000. So they drive from Canyon every day. Okay. And, uh, they do a lot of work. Uh, in Amarillo. So even though we lived in Canyon and, and I say I'm from Canyon, we did more in Amarillo than we ever did. Almost more like a, a bedroom community yeah, yep, kind of situation. Absolutely. Tell absolutely. me about the, the oil field work in you know, Midland area. <laughs> what was that like during those days? That, um, that was an interesting time. So I moved there during the last boom, I guess. Uh, so I moved in 2010, first part of 2010. Uh, and everything was full swing. They were building apartment complexes that were already leased out. Mm -hmm. There were rigs everywhere. It, it was insane. So what I did, I worked for an environmental consulting agency and we cleaned up, uh, for oil companies that had spills. So we worked on pipeline spills. We worked a little bit of everything. Uh, my main job was writing the closure reports. So after we go in, we clean it all up. We test the soil. It's at a good level. Uh, I was responsible for writing all the reports that those companies would then send into the state. And saying we did what we were supposed yes. to do. Yeah. It's yeah. all good now. Yeah. And so I I don't know. I, I've always wanted to write. I've always enjoyed writing. And uh, in our office, a majority of the people wanted to be out in the field doing something. And I was like, it's 110 and we're having to yeah. wear like excessive clothing to be safe and all this. And, and I sweat a lot and I was, I'll write your reports for yeah. you. You were happy to be in the yeah. office then. Yeah. So I wrote most of the reports for a year and a half or so. It was fun. It, it was exciting. It, you learn how to be a really good defensive driver because speed limit is a suggestion. Um, it's a lot of big trucks and stuff yeah. driving around there too. Yeah. And when they outweigh you and they're driving 85, you kind of just get on it and pay attention. So that was fun. Did you think that that field might be something you end up doing for a long time? Or was it, hey, this is a boom. I'm going to go take advantage of this sure. and see how long it lasts. How did you think about it? I've never really, this this will be a theme throughout the entire time I'm talking, but I don't know that I've ever looked at something and said, I'm going to do this my entire life. Uh, when I went to ACU, I was actually a business marketing major. I switched my major four times, finally landed. I wanted to be in agriculture because I thought, you know, I grew up in a small town. Um, I have a ton of farming and ranching lineage on, on both sides of my family. I should get into agriculture somehow. That ultimately led into that transition into environmental science. And then um, I got connected with this uh, environmental company and intern forum and they were based out of Amarillo. It's Talon LPE. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I interned for them up here for three summers and enjoyed it, enjoyed the work and eventually I uh, got a job in the Midland office after okay. I graduated. So I, when I started, I, I thought, well, maybe I could parlay this into a job that with a company and so instead of being the person that gets called to go out and do all these things, I'm, the, I'm doing the calling. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought for, I thought about that for like two minutes. It wasn't for very long. I realized, no, this is not why I'm here. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, and that hit pretty quick. But then I was like, I don't 
know what to do next, yeah. you know, I, or I don't know how to take the next step to begin doing what I want to do. So when you came back to Amarillo, did you have an idea of what that next step was going to be? I mean, did you come to find work or did the work kind of bring you back here? So I have a younger sister with special needs and uh, she's 33 now. Uh, we're 18 months apart. Because of Haley, uh, my parents started a, a nonprofit organization in 1999 and they started doing a ton of work with, with schools in the surrounding area uh, working with parents and educators to get the best experience for the child. Uh, and that eventually moved into several other things. And um, now they do a ton of marriage work. What's that nonprofit called? It's called The Haley Project, okay. H-A-L-I. So if the national divorce rate, say, is 50%, in the disability community, uh, the it's 80%. Wow. So the divorce rate... If you have a child with special needs, your divorce rate is hovering right around 80%, uh, which is not good. So yeah. my parents eventually focused their efforts in that and have been do doing a ton of marriage work uh, for the last 15 or so years. And I always thought, like, no, I need to go do my own thing, right? Like, I have to – I can't always be Brad's son or Haley's brother or something. Yeah, I've got to go be Justin somewhere. Well, I quickly realized it's not so bad being Haley's brother. <laughs> uh, it opens a lot of doors. And so I moved back to go back to school. Um, and I got my master's in social work from WT. Okay. Yeah, I've been here ever since. So that was in, I graduated in 2014 and did that. What did you want to do with that master's degree? I mean, did you know? Did you think, all right, I just need to, <laughs> you know, move in the nonprofit space or? Sure. Was there a goal with that? There's definitely a goal. My dad has a master's degree in counseling and my mom and has actually gone back to school uh, to finish her degree to be an, a psychological associate. And they're more direct. What I wanted to do, I always knew I wanted to be doing community work, uh, group work. I'm more nervous one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. than I am in front of a crowd of people. Okay. And so I knew pretty early on that the direct counseling, you know, patient client type of work wasn't going to be for me. So I might be the only social work student with a master's degree who's only done the minimum amount of counseling that you have to have right. to have that degree. Uh, I knew, I knew pretty early on that it was going to be more community neighborhood type work. So I knew kind of what I wanted to do. I didn't know how it would look. I wanted to work with mainly adults with special needs because if you if you look at the scope of things there are a ton of resources for pediatrics and there are fewer resources available especially within communities as you get older right and it's something we didn't really realize but Haley being 33 now like we've walked with that for a while and so I wanted to focus more on that um I just didn't have skills. I didn't, I didn't exactly know how that would look. And so ultimately I wound up working for boys ranch and that was hilarious story in and of itself too, because I didn't do anything typical at boys ranch either. If I don't know that I've ever had a typical role in anything that I've done. Um, I was part of a focus group. I led a focus group that 
um, the CEO of the time, Dan Adams, was at, and it was the only one I'd ever seen him attend. I ran it. He thought enough of me to remember me. So I, I reached out to him. The Social Work Advisory Council needed a new chairperson. And nobody was raising their hand. I had just graduated uh, and I was about to take my licensing exam. Uh, nobody was volunteering to step up. And so he nominated me to hmm. be the chair of this advisory council. And I was like looking around the room and like, these people have been practicing social work longer than I've been alive. And you're going to nominate me. Well, as soon as somebody else was nominated, you know, we got a ton of seconds. And so all of a sudden I'm the chair of the advisory council and yeah, that was nuts. So I did that for a few years. Luckily, there were a ton of really smart people that helped me and uh, we did some good things. But I remember that and I needed a job. And so I emailed him and said, hey, I'm kind of looking for more of a macro sense job. I I don't know if you have anything like that at Boys Ranch, but I know you would know where to point me. Well, it turns out he was looking for someone to do some different things uh, more on the policy and legislation side. And so we kind of came up with our own, with his own job description for me and hired me. And I worked there up until September of last year doing different things. I um, spent a lot of time in Austin, spent a lot of time at conferences. My job was mm -hmm. to learn as much information in the child welfare system as I possibly could and then summarize that in four bullet points. So. Right. Uh, if you ever need something written in a summary, I'm your person for <laughs> that. Was that work out at Boys Ranch, like on property, or was it part of the local administration? <clears throat> it was part of the local. During that time, I was probably out at the ranch once a week because uh, my uh, my main goal was to learn everything I could about what the ranch did and then be able to apply that to what was going on in the state landscape and the national landscape. And so... It was one of the coolest jobs you could have if if you're like me and are kind of a policy nerd. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I enjoyed reading everything. I enjoyed being up to date. And then I really enjoyed having to take what I thought were the most important pieces for us and put those in a in a written format. So And you said that lasted until September. What happened then? So during that time, I went part-time at Boys Ranch to teach social work at uh, WT. Um, and I was a full-time instructor there, and I ran the undergrad um, internship program uh, for three semesters. And then in 2021, I got asked to come back in a fundraising role full-time. So I came back, and I, I switched, and I wasn't doing really any strategic stuff um, and I was mainly writing grants and doing, uh, foundation and corporate, uh, fundraising. My main skill was writing and I had a really good knowledge of, of the ranch, what they were trying to do, and then applying that to what somebody would want to hear. Mm -hmm. And so everything that I had, had been doing for the five years leading up to that had really just, uh, played right into it and did that. And, and towards the end, I was just in a spot where I was having an internal battle with myself thinking I need to be doing more. And because of my personality and everything, I, I didn't really have the energy or the time to do other things and, and to get other projects that I wanted to start up and running. Mm -hmm. 
And so finally push came to shove and I was just like, okay, I have to get out and I have to start doing these other things. Um, the timing wasn't great. We were looking at November or December being my departure, but talking with my uh, supervisor at the time and my boss, he suggested the end of our fiscal year, which is September 30th. And I was like, okay, sounds good. Uh, we'll just make that work. And so kind of got launched out of, out of that position and haven't really looked back. I haven't mm -hmm. thought about it much. I was like, how many people in my position with a wife and two kids at home and my wife, Monica has been just super supportive of all this. Even if internally she's like wanting to punch me and, and do all those things. She, uh, you know, she's been very supportive and encouraging because she knows that I just get into things and I become super obsessed with them. And it's really hard for me to focus on anything outside of what I'm obsessed with at that mm -hmm. moment. Uh, and so back in June, I had met RJ Soli Jacks at Juneteenth, um, which I, I wasn't even supposed to be there, but uh, my wife was, is working for at the time was working for a, um, a COVID project for public health. And so she was there and said, you, you have to come up here and bring the kids. It's awesome. There's so many things to do. So we, I took up the kids and then of course I did what a great dad would do. Uh, I ran into somebody I knew and left the kids with my wife who was supposed to yeah. be working. Uh, so I had a great conversation, got introduced, introduced to RJ as the guy with all of the golf clubs. Yeah. Tell me about yeah. that first then. So why were you the guy with all of the golf clubs? Um, cause I needed something to do to fill my time, uh, while we were, uh, during the pandemic shutdown and I was in a not a terrible car wreck. My car got totaled, but, uh, it messed up my back and I couldn't play golf and I've always enjoyed playing golf and I needed something to kind of fill that void. Yeah. And I got into collecting vintage and antique golf clubs. And that went from having, I had five, uh, hickory shafted golf clubs from like 1920s era. Okay. At one point before I started giving them away, I had over 500 golf clubs wow. spanning from 1895 was my, is my oldest golf club up to the 1980s. And yeah, that was a little overwhelming, but was it, was it collecting because you just thought they were cool and you're sort of a completist or was it collecting because you thought, well, you know, is, is there like a, a market for, for these kinds of things? Um, I thought they were really cool. And I wanted to play them. The only kind of guiding light that I had was if I came across a golf club, I had to be able to fix it enough to be playable. Okay. Um, because one of the cool things about golf to me is you can like actively engage with its history. And I have so many golf clubs that tell this really cool story and tell the story of golf equipment I really enjoyed that process. I enjoyed getting a new one, researching it, learning as much as I could. And then eventually I got connected with a guy in Chicago that, that has his website is the driving range heroes.com. I got connected with him through a Facebook collecting group uh, and started writing articles for them and still do occasionally. Uh, and so being able to write about it fueled it even more. Yeah. And gave me an excuse. Well, you know, I've, I need content, so I've got to go get more uh, and learn about it. So 
it was really just an obsession. And most of the time I'd come across big lots of clubs being sold and I'd get a really good price knowing that I may only want or know the value of 10 or 15 of them. The collections wouldn't be separated. So I just bought them all right. and then brought them home. I also figured out that for the price of one hickory shafted club, I could buy full sets of classic era clubs. So classic era runs 1950s, 60s up into the 80s. And so those aren't old enough to be super expensive yet, except for a few really rare ones. And so that's really when it exploded because I could get 10 or 15 clubs for the price of one hickory club. Uh, And then over time, and this is where I'm at now, I have only played with hickory shafted clubs for just over a year. Yeah, just over a year. Hmm. In fact, I don't even know where my original modern set of clubs are. I have my driver and my putter. Uh, my irons, I let a friend borrow, and my wedges are somewhere. Mm. Uh, but I've just really enjoyed it. It it changed my perspective of playing golf mm-hmm. and really opened my eyes to what golf is supposed to be, which is fun and a way to get away from everything. Yeah. Um, but golf is one of those sports where the technology has changed it a lot, you know, where sure. a uh, what what once would have been a good – 150 yard or 200 yard drive, you know, now is 300 yards or, or something like yeah. that. Because just because the technology, the, the swings haven't changed, it's the sure. way that you hit the ball. And so going back to the old hickory ones, maybe feels a little purer or a little like a return to it, what it used to be. Yeah, it, it does. And the thing I tell people is it comes with an excuse, right? Like if you go spend thousands of dollars on brand new clubs, you're expecting a certain outcome. When you're swinging a 100-year-old club, you have no expectations. And so if you hit a bad shot, you're supposed to. It's 100 years old. Everybody expects it to be a bad shot. Yeah. Yeah. And so... And for sure, you're not going to break it over your knee or anything. Oh, heck no. You might do with a... No. No. And that's another misconception is that because they're wooden and because the shaft may be 100 years old, that they're weak and brittle. uh, And they're not. I've broken one club and it's because I was trying to hack a ball out of a yucca plant and the plant won. Okay. And that's the only time I've cracked a shaft in this entire experiment. And the clubs that I've restored and and given to somebody else, they haven't broken them either. So it, they're not fragile. Um, it does slow down your swing. It makes you have a better swing because, um, it has to be smooth. And the other thing it does is it really helps with focus because you know uh, there's no forgiveness and you can't hit a bad shot. And so it really helped me because I could lose focus in the middle of a round and just lose it. Uh, I'm still not great, but it's just brought it to what it's supposed to be for me. And that is kind of what led me to thinking about how do I use these to create more opportunities Mm -hmm. Uh, because that, Throughout my life, I've been so blessed with connection um, and with people, especially in Amarillo, that love this place, love the people of this place, and want to provide opportunities to make it better um, for the next generation. And it's just amazing how many times I've come across somebody who's 
like-minded mm-hmm. and, and looking for that. And so I have all these clubs and I'm thinking, what am I going to do with them? And, and then you meet RJ. And then I meet RJ. And at the time I was pretty close to 500 or so yeah. clubs. And so you were introduced as this is the guy who's got a whole bunch of old golf clubs. Yeah. His yeah. wife doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> he's not sure what he's going to do with it. Yeah. What do you think, RJ? And something unbelievable happened. He says, really, you're just the guy I need to talk to. Because I've been thinking about, I'm, I'm the new principal at Hamlet Elementary, and I've been thinking about how I could start up a golf club for the kids at Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we can make that happen. Uh, and so for the next uh, few weeks, we kind of, we met a few times and planned this out. How could we do this? I gathered up five sets of vintage clubs, and then I told a few people about what we were about to do, and they gave me their junior sets. Okay. Since September, I've been going up on Tuesdays, and kindergarten through fifth grade, play golf with kids. And I'm not a great golf coach, and I told RJ that. I was like, I know enough to get you started, um, but I keep it really simple because we overcomplicate it just like in other areas of life, right? Uh, we take really simple ideas and we add layers and layers and layers to them. And before long, it's so complicated. Nobody knows what's going on. Yeah. And that's what we do in golf too. And so I teach, I said, we can get them off the ground. And then eventually maybe we can partner with somebody to come in if there's a strong interest and they can take the game to the next level. We're introducing golf to kids that have never played golf and, and a lot of them had not seen a golf club before. Wow. Um, and this is out like on the the Hamlet school grounds. So you're not yeah. taking them out to Ross Rogers or anything, no. even though it's, it's fairly close. Sure. But. Yeah. We're just right across 287 um, from Wonderland and Thompson Park and Ross Rogers all right there. I did not know. I had not spent a ton of time in North Amarillo, but the terrain of North Amarillo is so cool mm-hmm. because it's not the flat part that you think about. Right. But there are Hills that it's the rolling plains. Like, and so the school of Hamlet sits up on a Hill and then uh, the playground and the gym, and then you walk down to the park area. Uh, and so we go down and we hit um, and practice in the park area at the school. And we're building up to make a trip to the golf course. But before that, we have to know that a ball can hurt you or somebody yeah. else's swing can hurt you. So, so there, there's some safety considerations. Sure. Yeah. Tell me why RJ, and, and I know you've had these conversations with him. Why was he looking to introduce golf? Like, why was it a thing that he thought, this is an opportunity I want to give some of the kids who are interested here? Exposure. It, it's another experience. It's something else to give a kid an idea of what is out there. Most of these kids are kids from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Yes. I want to say it's 93 to 95% of the kids at Hamlet are on the free and reduced launch program. Okay. I don't think they're not country club members. No, no. And golf is really cool. And in that when we watch it on TV, we see the golfer. Uh, and we think, oh, that's how you get into golf. You get really good, and um, maybe you'll make the PGA Tour or LPGA Tour. Uh, but golf as an industry is massive. If you just look at the golf course itself, 
there are superintendents, there are greenskeepers. It takes teams of people to make sure that the golf course uh, plays the way it's supposed to play and is taken care of. In fact, one of the friends that I uh, graduated with became this superintendent down in Lubbock uh, at the Rawls course. Wow. Okay. And so we're currently working on a way for us, for me to get down there and film what a superintendent does because a ton of superintendents come from a, uh, like a, a landscape background who are interested in golf and then they make that natural transition. So you're talking about hundreds of people that are employed just to make a golf course playable. Right. Um, and then you go into the other areas you have pros that teach and sell equipment. Uh, you have manufacturers who are always looking for the latest innovation, right? So the R and D budgets for the major manufacturers are in the hundreds of million dollars. Um, and some even in the billions of dollars. And so, you know, you, when you talk about like applying what you're learning in school, uh, golf as an industry has an avenue for everything that you're learning in school. And so we even incorporate some of those things in our daily practice, like physics and momentum um, and force, right? Like that golf ball is going to stay on the ground until you hit it yeah. with a golf club. And depending on how hard you're swinging it um, or how fast or how good your tempo is, that's going to make the ball fly in a certain direction. And so just exposing them to another avenue uh, to, and, and really it all points back to the classroom. Like what's going to make you be excited about learning? And that's what we're trying to do. And it, the coolest part to me is the fact that RJ thinks it's important enough uh, that during their RTI period, and I always forget what RTI stands for, uh, but it's like their additional tutoring mm -hmm. period. It sort um, of has some flexibility they with do. what they can do, right? Yeah. So each grade has an hour, a dedicated hour in their day uh, for this. And so for kids in the golf club, that's the hour that we get. Uh, and so there are some expectations, like you have to be taking care of your business in class, um, you cannot be getting in trouble. Uh, we've had a couple get in trouble and have to take some time off from the golf club. Uh, but they always come back and mm -hmm. they're excited to be back. And it, which is really cool that they've missed it, right? Yeah. Like I'm doing something that they miss, <laughs> which I never thought I'd be doing. So it really puts an emphasis on what they're doing throughout their day. And it gives them another, a different way of getting outside of the classroom, learning a few things, and then hanging out with a dude who just likes to play golf. It's called the Tiger Flight Golf Club. Yeah, Tiger Flight Golf Club. Yeah, and man, it's it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. How many kids are involved? 35. When we did the back-to-school bash, I took this sign-up sheet, and I printed off way too many sign-up sheets. And Monica's like, you sure you're going to need more than one? <laughs> I was like, I don't know, but I like to be over-prepared for everything. So I just took it. I printed off as many as I could, uh, dressed in my 1930s golf attire okay. and went up to school, stuck out wearing light blue shirt and, uh, plus a jaunt, jaunty cap. Yeah. <laughs> the, the cap is a little, I'll have to admit if I was going to pick a style of golf, like fashion wise that I appreciate more than the 1930s, 
it's it's like the early 1900s where you still wore pants like full length yeah trousers and you didn't have your socks showing no no so that's that's been a little different but, but that caught kids attention absolutely and maybe their parents attention too. yeah absolutely and it it was so cool to see the interaction like kids got excited when they saw it and wanted to be a part of it and so i went in i had no clue i, I was hoping maybe five um we had over 35 sign up originally. We even had some kids that didn't even go to school at Hamlet that signed up for it. And they're like, dude, you don't go here. You can't go. He's like, well, maybe he'll come to us, you yeah. know? It's like, well, eventually we'll do that. Uh, so yeah, the feedback was awesome. I, I couldn't believe it. And we had a kid from every, uh, multiple kids from each grade hmm. sign up. And yeah, it was tremendous. And there's not really anything like it even golf related for elementary schools in this area, right? Not in this area. No. Um, unfortunately, especially in smaller, more rural areas, the, the best opportunities to grow up playing golf and learning, um, are at country clubs. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, they have junior programs and they do all the competitions and everything. Uh, and so, what we really wanted to do is bring it outside of that fence and give that opportunity to other people. Right. And as far as like, I've never been intimidated walking into a, a clubhouse at, at a golf course, because from the time that my dad trusted me to go with him, I would go with him and I would walk through the clubhouse and, and know that you don't need to knock over every golf club that's setting up or, anything like that. And, and you just walk up, you tell them what time you're supposed to be teeing off, you pay and, and go wait for your turn. Uh, but if you've never done that, it's an intimidating yeah. experience. Yeah. Uh, and so like, we're going to incorporate that as well. So we'll start taking them up, um, over to Ross Rogers at some point, hopefully in the next couple of months and start letting them have that experience. And then and then we'll go from there. This has uh, sort of been, I guess, the pilot year um, as, as you figured it out with RJ's help and, and working with the kids at Hamlet. Do you envision it growing beyond that one school? I mean, is that sort of the goal? Or that, do you need to get some more clubs? Oh, so yes and yes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm currently in a spot where the clubs that I originally took up to Hamlet are too long and too heavy. And so what I'm about to do, and it took weeks of prayer, weeks of thinking about this and talking it out and annoying my wife with this huge concern of mine. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to gather and catalog and everything that I have and everything that has a steel shaft in it, I'm going to sell or trade uh, for more uh, junior and kid clubs and more practice balls hmm. because I'm not a huge completist for collections. And this has been so weird for me because I can talk myself out of buying a new pair of shoes when the shoes I'm currently wearing have holes in them. Yeah. And so buying every golf club that I came across for like a two year stretch was out of the norm for me. And now I'm finally back in this mode of, I don't really need these. Uh, I enjoy restoring and fixing the hickory shafted clubs that are 
pre-1935, it's a lot of fun to me. I don't enjoy the steel shafted ones as much. Uh, and I don't play them like I thought I would. And so uh, they would be better used by somebody else. And uh, we can turn that into something that benefits the uh, the golf club. The other piece of that is Monica's aunt uh, is very, very well connected in the Barrio community, Teresa Kennedy. And she has mentioned to me several times, and I know she's doing this purposefully, that she told, I can't remember the names, but she's mentioned the golf club a Mm -hmm. few times to other schools um, and after school programs. And so I think once we make the decision to, and, and have the way to expand, I don't think it'll be any issue at all. And we could probably be within, you know, realistic constraints. We could be in every elementary school at some point with the goal of, Preparing kid like if a kid has an interest in golf, giving them the opportunity to grow that interest and grow their skills. So that way, when they're in high school and they're a freshman, it's not the first time they're seeing a golf yeah. club when they try out for the golf team. Um, and, you know, one of the uh, I have a really good friend whose daughter plays for Amarillo High. And she's really good. And one of the reasons why she's really good is they, is because they have the ability to take her down to Dallas and um, work on her game and be with a coach that is going to help her fine tune everything and become more of an expert. And so my thinking is what if we did that here? Yeah. And it's not just golf. I mean, you think of every youth sports thing that has traveling teams, where does everybody have to go? Nobody comes here. You go to Dallas, you go, Oklahoma city. I mean, even out of the state. And so what if, what if we brought that here and then we had a place for kids to fall in love with the game, enjoy it, and then grow their skills as well. Like to me, that would just be the coolest thing ever. The last question I had, and and this is just because your story seems like a very Amarillo thing to me that you randomly go to a Juneteenth celebration after having amassed all these golf clubs, somebody introduces you to the one principal <laughs> who has been thinking, man, I wish I knew somebody with a lot of golf clubs so that we could do this golf thing. And and now, now it's a really good partnership. Yeah. Is, is that something that kind of surprises you that you've ended up here? Or does that just feel like, yeah, it's kind of how things go here. I'm not that surprised by it. Honestly, I laugh about it. I, and I guess surprised maybe, but not shocked. It seems to me, if you haven't connected with someone who does that with you in Amarillo, you haven't spent much time outside of your typical friends group hmm. to me because my life and, and Monica's life and the career paths we've chosen have introduced us to so many people in different pockets of Amarillo. And so it's just not hard to find somebody with the same personal mission that may have the same interest as you. Uh, and, and really the biggest piece of that is just, it's just getting out there. Now I've also been really fortunate that I've spent you know, growing up as a preacher's son. Um, I've always just been introduced to people mm-hmm. and if the doors were open, I'm there. And 
if there's an opportunity to meet people and to hang out and uh, I try not to turn those down. Um, now there are times in my life where I've been in too many things and had to step back, but I think that Amarillo really provides you with opportunities to meet people. You just have to be looking for them. And I wouldn't be able to even consider doing something like this if I hadn't met and been in connection with all of these people along the way, yeah. you know? And so it's tremendous, absolutely tremendous. This episode of Hamarello is supported by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings. You know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but its Amarillo store is independently owned and operated by the Hawkins family, and they live right here in town. And here's the thing, they offer a lot more than just Lazy Boy recliners. You'll find all kinds of furniture in a variety of contemporary styles, fabrics, leather, uh, a lot of different colors. And Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings has a ton of products in stock ready to take home or deliver today. So go visit the showroom at 3636 Sansi. Thanks to Lazy Boy of Amarillo for sponsoring the show. Hey, Amarillo is also sponsored this week by Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches. Jimmy John's is another national brand, but it's got three locations in Amarillo, two along I-40 and one downtown near the ballpark. And with baseball season underway, the Sod Poodles are playing, the downtown location is open for all games. And these franchise locations are all owned and operated by an Amarillo resident. They've got big new sandwiches and sides coming this spring, so be sure to hit them up. Thanks to the locally owned Jimmy John's for sponsoring Hey Amarillo. Okay, I'm back with Justin Thompson. Justin, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes small projectile points from the area which show that people first began to use a bow and arrow around 2,000 years ago. And what I learned at the museum is that these were usually made by elderly men who no longer went to war because the task of making them required the technical precision of an expert. Uh, so only the old guys knew how to make the projectile Heck points. Yeah. The young guys were out there using them. Yeah. Uh, you can learn more at panhandleplanes.org. Okay, when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I've touched on this, but we have pockets of people 10 years from now. I would like to see those pockets of people connected hmm. because uh, growing up in, in this region, you learn early on to be autonomous and to learn how to figure out things on your own. And if you see a need work to fulfill it. Right. So my hope and there are just pockets of people spread out throughout Amarillo that are doing those things. And I wonder what that would look like if, we all joined forces and, yeah. and connected and did those together. Okay. Other than wind, which I know has an adverse impact on most people's <laughs> golf game. Uh, what does this area have too much of? I may get a phone call from my dad for this. And I say church buildings. One of the, one of the cool things that, that has happened over the past three years uh, that I've, I've seen and gotten to watch is several churches coming together uh, to form like one faith community. Um, and uh, we have a minister on staff at, at our church who regularly says like the most segregated time of our week is on Sunday mornings. We all go to our own church. We, yeah. we sit with people that look just like us and 
Um, it's just a very segregated time of your week. Uh, and I, I just think that looking at what Jesus called us to do and looking at his life, um, I just wonder what he would say seeing our Sunday morning routine or our mm -hmm. Saturday night routine. And uh, I would love to see fewer church buildings and bigger congregations of people. No, I, I can agree with that. I've always thought it strange. You know, you hear people saying, well, I feel really called to plant a church and they'll go and start a church that's within a half mile of four other churches. Yeah. Uh, many of which are very small and maybe struggling. Sure. And if you would just say, invest those resources into that existing church, which probably has a building that's paid for and has a dedicated yeah. you know, number of people who attend, uh, you can do the same work Absolutely. instead of reinventing the wheel in yeah. a different building with a different focus. Yeah. So tagging on to that, uh, when I taught at WT, one of the things I would highlight to my class every semester, uh, and I, the main class I taught was macro social work, which is communities and, and beyond, right? There are over like 1500 registered nonprofits in Amarillo. There's a lot of things that we don't think about that nonprofits do. Uh, but to have that many with our population is just insane. Really shows that when you get an idea, you don't always look to see who else is doing it and how you may compliment them. Uh, you just start your own thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like you have 35 organizations competing against each other, doing the same thing, submitting grant proposals to Amarillo Area Foundation. And those poor souls have to mm -hmm. weed through all of that and make a decision. Or competing with the same donor base. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? Hickory golfers. <laughs> Are you the only one? Uh, there's a few others that I don't exactly know, but I would love for you to reach out, anybody to reach out to me. I have plenty. Um, if you want to, try it. We can make it happen. Okay. What's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? The people who are invested in it to make it a great place. I, I think we, we overlook it. You can have a conversation with somebody different every day, learn what they're doing and it's to make this the best possible place that they can. Okay. What's your favorite local coffee shop? I can't go against this one. Uh, it's Palace. I started out at the Palace downtown. And now, uh, since I do a lot of work from home, the one on 34th and Coulter mm -hmm. uh, has become my new my new spot. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? All of them. <laughs> I, I am non-discriminatory when it comes to food and the amount of food that I eat. If I had to pick, I, I can't pick one. Uh, so I have two. Jorge's. And Blue Sky okay. are, are my two go-tos. If I had a last meal, I would pick something from both places. All right. That's that's probably a pretty good call. Yeah, I feel like it is. If you do it anyway, it may be your last meal and all the enchiladas and burgers and stuff. Yeah. Sounds good to me. What's your favorite local golf course? Uh, Ross Rogers, the Mustang course is my favorite. Why? Um, especially this time of year when we don't have to water as much, it sets up really well for a hickory golf game, which is on the ground and rolling. Mm -hmm. um, wild horses is the same too. Both of them are fun, but 
Um, I like the layout of Mustang. It's a little different and uh, the fairways are wide and, and I don't hit many fairways. So that's perfect for me. Okay. The last question is when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? Oh, I want to say it's been about eight years. My wife had some friends and we were just dating at the time. I uh, had some friends come down from Canada and we took them out there. Hmm. And I'm pretty sure that's the last time. But we're gearing up for a trip soon just because we have a six-year-old and an almost four-year-old. So we're going to have to take them yeah, out there. It's, it's a fun place for them. Yeah, okay, absolutely. well, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like local people to know about or to experience? We have an event coming up through the COVID project. And, and we have several events throughout the year. So if, if this one doesn't work, but there's really a large initiative to be healthier. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have we have a lot of events planned and that are going to be planned uh, to make to just make it easier to get information. Uh, and so I would plug things like uh, spring into wellness, which will be happening in April, and then getting to know the folks at Emerald Public Health uh, over the past few months. Man, they're working really hard uh, to to make this a, a healthier place and a better place. And then I would be missing out if I didn't say haleysweeklynews.com. So it's recently launched uh, live and it is all about spreading hope and uh, providing uh, ways for you to lift your spirits because having a child with special needs uh, can be a, a difficult task and um, life can be pretty serious at times. And so we want to provide you with an opportunity uh, to find hope um, and have your spirits lifted. And so that's something that my sister and I uh, work on and, and record uh, shows through. And it's all Amarillo based okay. that um, even though I give her a hard time because she still lives in Canyon with, with my parents, uh, she spends a lot of her time here. And most of our guests are from Amarillo and work in Amarillo. And so it is a very local show that that everybody can find something to uh, relate with. Okay. Justin Thompson, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Justin for the interview. Be sure to read Big Swing at brickandelm.com about the Tiger Flight Golf Program at Hamlet. It's a really fun story. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors Jimmy John's. Lazy Boy of Amarillo and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Don't forget about the Hey Amarillo 300th episode live show, May 5th, just a few weeks away. Tickets are available now at heyamarillo.live. Don't wait until the day of the event to get your ticket. Go ahead and get them now so I can make sure you're going to be there and plan ahead for you. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Corey Burns, Katie Linger, Wes Reeves, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 296. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.